The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. In a world that can be challenging, and at times unpredictable, it's hard to find moments to focus on what you need. Join Stephanie James on The Spark as she guides you to use your inner flame to ignite your best life. As a best-selling author, psychotherapist, transformational life coach, and international show host, Stephanie is dedicated to helping you create a life that takes you, your goals, and your passions to the next level, so you can live a life that is fully lit up and fully alive. She believes that your life is meant to be a beautiful expression of the things that light you up. That by living your dreams, you give permission to others to do the same. Are you ready to feel alive and inspired to fuel your dreams and put a fire behind your desires? Let's ignite a spark in one another that will illuminate the world. The Spark with your host, Stephanie James, starts now. Welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. And we are taking the spark and we are igniting it today. Excited to have you here with us. My special guest today is Dr. John Schinnerer. And I'm so excited to speak with him. He, this guy has like done everything. I swear to God. He's the author of the award-winning book, Guide to Self, The Answer to the Age-Old Question, How Can I Be Happy? He's an expert in positive psychology and the founder of Ultimate Relationships and the host of the Evolved Caveman podcast, as well as an executive speaker and coach. My goodness. Welcome to the show, Dr. John. Thanks for having me. Just call me John. Okay. Okay. And good pronunciation on that last name. You get extra points for that. Yay. Well, it's interesting. My my husband is a chiropractor and I always think it'd be great. Just be Dr. Oaks but he is known as Dr. Morgan. He just goes yeah. by his first name. So it's pretty normal when, when I hear that. But John, so happy that you're here. Let's chat a little bit about how you got into, we're going to rewind a little bit, positive psychology. And I, I read one of the cool things is you were one of the emotion consultants on the film. Oh gosh, what was, what was it called? Inside um, Out. Inside Out. Yeah. I guess when I went into psychology, I wanted to find out more about emotion. Cause that was all what always vexed me. Right. I was a pretty smart kid. You know, school was decently easy for me, but the stupidest, most embarrassing, most shameful stuff I've done in my life was all when my emotional mind was in charge of me. And I was like, what are these damn things that I can't really seem to get a handle on? And so uh, ultimately I got into a PhD program at UC Berkeley was trained to be a school psychologist and you know, uh, a school district locally kind of cured me of my desire to help little people um, because it was so screwed up that uh, there were some really unhealthy things going on there. And I was like, I if I stayed here a whole career, I couldn't fix it. And so I left and started my own company doing pre-employment testing for large companies online. Um, and that went well for about seven years. And then the economy tanked and so did my company. And I had to reinvent myself and I started getting into positive psychology. This was about 2004. So I read, I don't know, a thousand studies. I was geeking out on this stuff. And after reading these studies, I was really excited. I thought, wow, now I've got tools to turn down the volume on the negative shit in our lives and tools to turn up the volume on the positive shit. And so I wrote compulsively about 
600 pages of a framework on how to coach people towards a successful and happy life. Because one of the things that hit me when I was very young, 17, was what the hell is this success concept all about? Like, I'm not feeling this. As a senior in high school, I was student body president. I was captain of three teams. I was taking advanced courses. So I was doing everything that I was supposed to be doing. And I'm sure, you know, it looked great from the outside in, but from the inside out, I was depressed part of the time. I was anxious part of the time. I was stressed a lot. I was miserable. I was exhausted. And it just made me start thinking, where's the room and success for things like happiness, relaxation, contentment, that kind of thing. Because I, I think my strategy at that point was achieve my way out of my depression, which is a limited strategy. So anyway, wrote a book that opened up the, uh, I was offered a, a daily primetime radio show in the Bay Area, which, you know, part of my makeup's depression, part of its anxiety. So that really scared the crap out of me. A live primetime daily radio show that reached 10 million people. I don't know how many were actually listening, could have been five, but in my mind, it was 10 million. And I was awful in the beginning. Couldn't tell a story, couldn't tell a joke, couldn't emote because, you know, Berkeley had drilled into me. Everything you say has to be backed up by research study, which kind of puts a kink in your conversational flow. But I, I learned over time to kind of relax into it. And I got to interview a bunch of world-class experts and stopped the radio show after a year opened up private practice. I wanted to do positive psychology, but back in 2005-ish, the response was kind of lukewarm. So a psychiatrist friend of mine said, well, why don't you do anger management? And I was like, oh, well, I can do that. So I started doing anger management, combining it with positive psych. And that led to me working primarily with men. And that's not to say women aren't angry, it just happened that I was seeing mostly men. And I got tired of that after about 10 years because it's hard work at some level. And I started working more with executives and businessmen where I picked, I quickly picked up that the biggest source of their pain in my estimation was at home with their, their marriage, their spouse, and, and often with their teenage kids. And, and these were men that had done everything right, right? They had bought into the bullshit story that were sold as kids, you know, get good grades, do well, do a lot of extracurricular activities, get in the best college you can, get a good job, get married, have kids, retire at 65, and then you'll be happy. And that's not true. And these were men that, you know, 45 to 55, that were highly successful, made a lot of money, and came to me and said, you know, John, I'm miserable. And I said, yeah, makes sense. And so started working with them, started teaching them relationship skills and wanted them to kind of get better at, at relationship, whether it was in their marriage or with employees or with their kids. And that led to more recent work in masculinity and man box culture. And then most recent work, which has been in psychedelics, um, psychedelics assisted therapy. And so all these kind of passions have just get, they, they keep me going. They keep me excited. They keep me learning. So I can break any of those down that you want, but that's kind of the, the short version. Yeah. I, I love the evolution of what you've done. And I think the important message too, what, what I really heard in there was that piece of, you know, we've been programmed. We have these external programs for happiness and what success is. And that really it's an inside job. Yeah. And Absolutely. so, you know, we have then all the material things and we have what looks in an exterior level as success, but here you are working with all these men and they're saying, yeah, I'm, I'm dying on the inside yeah. here. There's, there's something more. Well, and one of the things I've thought about with men, and I assume this is women too, but I just kind of focus on men largely is it, it seems to be a hallmark of maturing into a whole authentic man to move from external validation where we're looking for others to give us pats on the back and attaboys and awards and prestiges and bonuses moving from external validation to internal validation where we're you know we're clear on our own internal values and morals and we can give ourselves our own pats on the back when we operate in keeping with those values and morals 
hundred percent. And I do think that that is also true for women. I actually mm -hmm. just did a post this morning talking about that sexy has no expiration date because sexy is an attitude and it's something that comes from within. It's a confidence of feeling good in your own skin. Absolutely. And, you know, being 56 years old myself and saying, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't look like a 26 year old anymore. And that doesn't matter. I'm not supposed to, because the deeper part of who I am. And I said, you know, sexy doesn't even have to do with sex. It has, it really truly is. How am I illuminated and lit up inside? Yep. And how am I living that and, and loving things in my life, including myself? Yeah. So we're both 56. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. And, and I would comment on your appearance, but I don't want to be misogynistic or sexist. So I, I won't. Okay. <laughs> I don't, I, normally it's weird. I'm trying to get a hang of that. Like, oh, you can't, you can't say that. So it's okay. No, it's okay. I hear a lot of, from a lot of people. Yeah. You don't look 56 and yeah. yeah and I'm, and I'm thankful for that. That's what I was and, going to say, but yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, John. And you know, the reality is no matter what body we come in, right. It's this internal journey of how we learn to love ourselves. And when you think yeah. about your own internal journey, you shared a little bit with us about how you, you know, did in school and how you started, you know, cultivating this career. Was there, is there any, what I would call like milestones or something that was like an aha moment from you that personally really began that deeper inner journey where you saw those things in you? Um, I think it goes back to when I was a kid. I think that experience being a senior in high school mm -hmm. and just killing myself to succeed in order to get, you know, the approval of others was significant. Um, and then there was a bunch of other experiences along the way that were maybe lesser, but still important, you know, having a, a roommate in college whose dad killed himself eight days prior, having a teacher in high school that was not psychologically balanced. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's just, it's been a continual process of learning how to, how to continually open myself up to love and caring and compassion, knowing full well that life's going to smack me in the face and hurt me and it's going to close me up. And then I got to do it again and open myself up again over and over and over. I think that's one of the fundamental challenges of life is not to get cynical or jaded based on the hurts and traumas that we've experienced. Absolutely. And I love that you say it is something that is not, you know, it's not something that we arrive at. We arrive at this ultimate point and then life doesn't happen anymore in any way, but wonderful that that's just not realistic. And so you continue to go through challenges. We all do. And these difficult times. And then how I love what you said about, you know, just keeping opening up, opening mm -hmm. your heart, growing. And I already experienced you just talking with you. I mean, obviously you are a strong man. You have this strong male energy and yet obviously in touch with your feelings. And I think, I, I think of Brene Brown's work, right? When she talked about her interviews with men where so many of the men were saying, well, we can experience, we're allowed to experience two emotions and that's sad and angry. Yeah. And that's it. And I would argue actually that it's three. So I, you know, and when I'm explaining the man box culture, you know, we get rules growing up as, as boys about what it means to be a real man. So don't back down, be competitive, be the provider, be self-reliant, don't ask for help, be stoic, i.e. don't feel. And as we're growing up, if you show too much sadness or fear in public, and, you know, it doesn't have to be your dad or your mom, usually it's peers, someone will say something like, dude, don't be such a pussy, don't be a little bitch, or don't be a little girl. Now there's other insults that can go in there, but those three are the epitome of femininity. And so the message there is don't be feminine. And I don't think it takes many times of receiving that before you're like, shit, I'm never, I'm not going to show that again. That's painful. So you hop back in the man box on the other side of the emotional spectrum. If you show too much joy, love, romanticism, excitement, flamboyance, God forbid it's dude, don't be so gay. Don't be a fag. I apologize for the slurs, but I think we got to talk about this. Yeah, and the message there real. is don't be homosexual. Yeah. And so what are we left with that we can publicly display without fear of humiliation? I would say it's three things. I would say it's lust because if I comment on someone's, you know, on a female and say, Oh my gosh, I do her. She's so hot. It's signaling to others that I'm straight. I'm hetero. So that's safe. I can say I'm stressed because that says, you know, I'm kind of busy or important. And then the big one is anger. 
some degree of anger, irritation, frustration, annoyance, rage, but the vast majority of our emotions as men get funneled or channeled through that anger lens. And it really hamstrings us when we get into relationship because the biggest complaint I hear from women about their spouses is I can't connect with my husband. Well, yeah, it makes complete sense because we're not socialized in that direction. And the thing I like about this idea, this concept is it's not our fault as men. In other words, we didn't ask to be socialized like this. It just happens. However, I would argue that it is our responsibility to evolve beyond this man box. So I, I think, you know, one of the goals for us is to balance that the masculine and feminine energies within us so that we have the ability and the choice of what energy to bring to any given situation. So my two-year-old daughter falls and skins her knee. That's a different set of energy, a more feminine set of energy versus if I'm going to go out and play tackle football, for example. Yeah. You know, I think what you're saying is so brilliant. I love the man box. And I think one of the things too, I'm, I'm really, that's really resonating with me right now is this whole thing of, because I do a lot of couples therapy as well. And so one of the partners comes in and usually it's the man, you know, who's saying, I don't get enough sex. And the woman's going, I don't get enough connection or communication. And one of the things you said, you know, in a woman saying, I don't, I don't get enough connection. Well, I imagine, you know, as what you're sharing that men, then they haven't even connected with themselves, mm -hmm. you know? So then there's this expectation that they're able to show their emotions and, and do it with their partners. And it's gotta be again, that inside job first. And yeah. so how do you, how do you invite men to start that journey? Well, one of the things I'll explain about the man box, because I want to immediately take fault off of them. So mm -hmm. we get away from self-loathing, self-despair, self-punishment. And, and then I'll try to get them curious about, you know, the thinker isn't the only part of you. Because most men are way over-identified with the thoughts in their head. And we can largely, I think, blame Rene Descartes for that. I think, therefore, I am, bastard. Um, you know, he totally <laughs> disconnected mind from body. And that's just false. And so I, I try to convince them to, at times, bring their attention out of their head and tune into their body because emotions are embodied. They show up more so in our body. And by determining or discerning those physiological cues, we can begin to determine what we feel in the moment and begin to apply labels to them, i.e. emotions, and then also get greater and greater emotional granularity. And you know, the easiest way to do that, according to research, is just simply to pause three times a day take a deep breath, do a quick body scan and ask yourself, what am I feeling right now? And the beautiful thing about that research is the answer doesn't matter. What matters is stopping, pausing, doing the body scan and asking the question. And what we're trying to do is build metacognition or thinking about thinking or meta emotion, thinking about emotion. We're trying to create more psychological distance so that we can step back and observe with non-judgment, with curiosity. And if we're just in our heads, I mean, this is for women as well. Mm -hmm. then we're not grounded. We're not grounded in the body. Right. And, and what an essential piece to be grounded within ourselves, because yes, those emotions show up. Not only do they show up in our cells and our body, if we keep ignoring them, then they show up as dis-ease or disease. Yeah. So absolutely. Yeah. You know, so that, I mean, that, that's such a, such an important thing. And so part of what you do is teach, like, it sounds like a body mindfulness. Mm-hmm teaching people how to drop. I, I used to call it um, the 18 inch journey from your uh, yeah, head, from head into heart. your heart. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and ironically, I work with a lot of men in my practice, in my private practice. And um, that's been something that, that we work on as well. How do you help men deal with that anger piece? You know, you said for a while, you really focused on, yes. I mean, I think experiencing all these emotions is absolutely essential. And there's also this piece of when you've been enculturated and the feeling that you're allowed to feel is different levels of stress or anger. Mm -hmm. People don't know. Yeah. How to deal with that. Yeah. So anger, I mean, I do a lot of psychoeducation from the get-go and kind of talk about, you know, looking at anger on three different dimensions, duration, intensity, frequency, duration. Uh, how long does it last when you get angry? seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, years, you know, if we're talking about a grudge 
intensity is what we normally think about with anger on a one to 10 scale, one being calm, five being angry, 10 being incredible Hulk enraged. And the importance of getting on anger early on that scale, so that when you're a little bit annoyed, a little bit frustrated, kind of pissed off, if you want to say that, so that you can be aware of it, label it and speak to it. You know, hey, Stephanie, like, I'm feeling a little bit annoyed right now. I'm, I'm just trying to make something up. So sure. I need you to be home on time for dinner when you say you're going to be home at five, whatever, whatever it is. But to speak to it means that you're interrupting that drop of anger or resentment or annoyance from getting into your bucket of negative emotions. And what we normally do is we just sit on it, we suppress it, and the, that bucket of negative emotions just slowly accumulates until you bust a gut or go volcanic or you know you internalize it so much that you get sick. Frequency is how often does the anger come up? And so, you know, I'll start talking about those kind of things. I'll start talking about, you know, as you go throughout the week, just be curious about the tells in your body, the physiological cues. What's the first thing you notice when you begin to get angry? And let's tune into that as kind of the, the alarm that's saying, I'm a little bit annoyed. And then you can kind of go about and play around with it and be curious about, okay, so what's the trigger here? And then we'll talk about some of the triggers. And one of the concepts that I really like is this idea of universal anger triggers and how these anger triggers stack or accumulate. I think one of the best examples is, you know, losing your temper in the car on the freeway, right? Anger, road rage. And so, you know, one of the universal anger triggers is threat to physical safety, my physical safety. Another one is threat to my family's physical safety. Another one is personal boundary. So, Think of if you have someone, you know, talking two inches away from you aggressively, that's going to trigger anger. If um, for some people stepping onto their lawn might trigger anger because that's another boundary. But around our car, we have an invisible boundary in our head that you know, might be three to five feet away from our the external part of the car. So when someone cuts you off, it simultaneously triggers that boundary trigger, the personal safety and the family safety, assuming someone's in your car. So all of a sudden you've got three triggers that just stack and you're immediately triggered into intense anger. And so just being aware of some of these triggers, you can begin to call them out. You can begin to reinterpret them, right? Like, you know, I, I, one of the examples I always give is how do you interpret that driver coming up and tailgating you? Oh, that asshole, you know, he, I'm going fast enough. I'm going 80 in the, in the fast lane. I'm going to just tap on my brakes. I'll show him. Well, that just opens itself up to all sorts of bad outcomes in this day and age. The other way to go is to come up with a more compassionate interpretation for their behavior. Like maybe they just need to be at their destination more than I need to be at mine. Maybe there's someone sick in the back of the car. Maybe there's a pregnant woman in the car. And the interpretation changes all sorts of things for us. So some things like that. Yeah, which is brilliant it, because it's what we see, we make up, you know, th there's that mechanism the in our mind yeah. that's, that's trying to find meaning for mm -hmm. why this is happening. And I'm going to personalize this, especially because I'm in fight or flight at this moment. Yeah. You know, that this jerk's trying to run me off the highway. Yeah. So I love that. And again, it brings me back, John, to this power of the pause in our lives. Mm -hmm. And just being able, it's, it's like when, when I'm listening to that particular example, it's like taking this radio dial that's tuned in to like the worst music in our heads, you know, this screamo, and you're changing the channel to something that, that you enjoy, that calms you down. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about the pause and I, I remember interviewing Ethan Cross, who wrote a book called Chatter, which is all about, you know, the internal voice. He's done a ton of research on how to get that voice to shut the blank up. And one of the, the things that I took away from that book is when we're starting to get triggered, we tend to speak to ourselves in first person singular. I, me, my, and you know, I can't take this anymore. This guy's on my ass. I can't believe he's doing this. And there's an emotional tone to that first person languaging, I'm trying to think of yeah, the right word yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the easiest way with the least amount of cognitive load or cognitive effort to break out of that is to remind yourself to speak to yourself in the third person. Hey, John, relax. This isn't personal. He's just got to get to the hospital. Like just pull over one lane, let him go by. And you can hear the emotional tone change 
in your head, which is funny because there's no voice, it's just thought, but that's the easiest way to create psychological distance from yourself, between yourself and your thought stream, which is a, a huge idea because typically when we're getting emotional, we're getting fused with our thought stream, with those thoughts and feelings. We just become one with them. And so you really want to practice skills to just to stop it, to, to find a different way of being. To disengage from identifying that I am my thoughts. Yeah. And I am my feelings. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I am anger. Exactly. Exactly. Instead, I am experiencing anger yeah. right now. Exactly. It's not me. Or and, even yeah, I'm yeah. I'm experiencing tightness in my chest. I'm experiencing tightness yeah. in my hands. I'm experiencing tightening tightness in my jaws. Even you know, stepping back and just identifying the physiological cues rather than the emotion that we automatically interpret with that. And one of my favorite tools is if you're familiar with Dan Siegel's work. Mm-hmm. I had Dan Siegel on the show a few years ago. After wow! Congratulations, I'd seen him. that's big. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, after I'd seen him years and years ago at the Summit for Clinical Excellence in Boulder mm -hmm. and his wheel of awareness, which I yeah. absolutely adore. And after that point used for, I think a whole year, like literally every morning, because what it goes through is helping you identify those exact things. Like you're actually thinking about thinking, you're noticing yeah. how thoughts pop into your head. You do a not just external body scan, you do an internal body sensing. Yeah. And it really starts teaching you exactly that. You can watch as thoughts pop in. You can watch as emotions come up and how they're connected. Yeah, I heard a good exercise just a couple of days ago, which I thought was really cool. It's ask yourself, what is the next thought in my head going to be? And when you do that, I think for most people, there's a, there's a blank, there's a space there, right? Because you're like, I, I don't know what the next thought's going to be. And so it gives you a visceral feeling or example of what is it like to have a pause in between your thoughts? Because that's really what we're trying at some level to extend. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and we've got to take a break. Cannot wait to continue this conversation after the break. So listeners, come on back. We are going to continue igniting the spark with John Schinnerer. Come on back. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24 through 26, at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome back to Igniting the Spark. We're having just an awesome conversation with John Schinnerer. And John's been talking with us just so much about ways that we can get more in tune with ourselves, how we can know ourselves from the inside out, to name the movie he was a consultant in. And, you know, I, I wanted to talk with you about this piece that had to do with psychedelic integration, because that's been such a huge thing. A couple of years ago, my husband and I, we saw Fantastic Fungi on Netflix. And pretty soon it seemed like everyone was talking about psychedelic assisted therapy yeah. and 
I literally have 70 and 80 year old clients coming to me and saying, I want to know about this. I want well, to know. You're in Colorado too. So yeah. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> so, so let's talk more about that. And, and I loved, you know, on your LinkedIn where it said a nexus between spirituality and science. Mm-hmm. So yeah, thanks. Let's dive in. Yeah. Uh, so it, boy, let's see. I started doing research on psilocybin primarily about three or four years ago and looking at the scientific studies. And I've had a client that I've had for 10 years and from 15 to 25 suicidal thoughts daily, treatment resistant depression, high anxiety. And I tried to fire him a couple of times. His mom begged me not to, because I, I felt like I'm not getting anywhere. Like there's just, the progress is so painfully slow. Mm. And occasionally I'll get frustrated and get a bug up my butt and want to try something new. So I was doing the research. And so I went to him and I said, Hey, look, what do you think about trying psilocybin? The research is really solid for treatment resistant depression. Uh, it's helped somewhere between 61% to 68% of those with treatment resistant depression and antidepressants only help about 40% of people with depression, not treatment resistant depression. And, you know, kind of told him a little bit more about it. It's not addictive. It's relatively safe. And he said to my surprise, yeah, I'll do it. So I'm all excited. I'm looking up clinical research trials around the, you know, California and they're all over. And I said, you know, look, there's one at Stanford. We could do there. We go there. And he's like, mm, no, my anxiety wouldn't really let me go someplace and, and do it. I'm like, yeah, I, I kind of get that. So we tried microdosing for a couple months, minimal. And so I said, well, how about if I can find a place to get the mushrooms? How about if I just come and sit with you while you go on a journey? And he said, great. And so I went to his house and I, by the way, I also got his parents buy-in because that was important because this was, you know, coloring outside the lines in a big way. And we've done five journeys in the past 14 months. His mood's gone from a two to a six on a 10 point scale. He's more open-minded, more flexible in his thinking. He just got back from a couple mini vacations and was looking forward, anticipating going, which never happened. Um, he had fun at both of them, which never happened. At one, it was a wedding. He said, it was so great to see everybody. And I was like, who the hell are you? I said, do you realize how far we've come? Like, this is amazing. And so that kind of kicked things off. And, and then, you know, my fiance and I were going through a rough patch um, beginning of this year and broke up for a couple months. And then as part of our healing, we did psilocybin and MDMA, and that helped heal us tremendously. And then we started helping other friends, you know, through these journeys and kind of getting more experience, started getting into psychedelic assisted therapy certification courses. And the research is solid. The research is there. It, it seems to be the fifth wave of psychotherapy. Um, and, you know, both MDMA and psilocybin have been fast-tracked by the FDA for, um, because they've, their breakthrough treatments, the results have been so good. And it's believed that MDMA will be legalized in 2024, hoping that psilocybin will be legalized for therapeutic use in 2025. And so we're trying to get ahead of the, the wave because right now I think there's more demand for this than there are integration therapists. And, and so a, a whole journey is basically, you know, there's a prep session ahead of time to let people know what to expect to do a complete psychosocial history to figure out who can, who can do this, who can't, because there's some contraindications. Um, then you do the journey, which is about six hours. And then you have post journey integration sessions where you talk about what was experienced and try and solidify the gains. And the other thing that's pretty cool about this whole psychedelic renaissance is that these substances seem to reopen critical windows of learning in the brain, windows which we had when we were child, children, and then they close, whether it's you know accumulating or acquiring language or social or emotional learning, there's some other windows as well, but then those methods of learning become more difficult 
So psychedelics seems to reopen these windows of learning for either two, three, or four weeks, depending on the length of the journey. So MDMA is two weeks, psilocybin, three weeks, LSD, ayahuasca, ibogaine seems to be four weeks. But that means that the epiphanies and learning continues well beyond the journey itself. So powerful. And I'm curious with the psilocybin, is it the same dosage for every person? What is a typical dosage? I, so anything under one is microdosing. You, there's no psychoactive piece to it. You don't feel it per se. Anything under two, you might feel, but it's going to be pretty minimal. Then it, it depends on the size of the person, the experience of the person and the comfort level or anxiety level of the person. So typically I would start someone off 2.5 to 3.5 grams. And then an hour in, you give a booster dose, depending on how they're mm -hmm. feeling, if they want one. Because sometimes you do two and a half grams and you're like, I'm not really feeling anything an hour in. Okay, well, let's, how about if we do a booster? And it's, you know, I think we're so attached to this idea that there's one objective reality. And experience with psychedelics will show you clearly that that's not true. The research has been looked at with, you know, OCD, PTSD, depression. Uh, I think it's looking, being looked at with anorexia, eating disorders, addiction. I think there's even some talk of looking at it with autism, um, like MDMA with, you know, the empathy and the positive emotions that you get could be really helpful for that. But the others, the flip side of it is on the positive side is there's a, I don't want to say untapped because many of these substances have been used for hundreds, if not thousands of years, but there's this human growth potential piece to it where I believe we can access hitherto untapped memories going way back in our lives, some in utero or abilities that we're just not even aware that we could possibly do. Yeah. As, as I hear you say this, I mean, I'm just resonating and nodding. I mean, that's it. It's, this is so phenomenal. And um, in my experience as well, that's, that is what I found that it opens up doorways to higher understanding and interconnectedness with all that is. Mm -hmm. And the experience of really being in tune with, it's not just this dimension that we're experiencing. Yeah, Maybe it's all we're seeing. Well, and I, I think it gets us out of this illusion that I am me, I am separate. I am my five layer meat sack because that's not true. It, well, it's true at one level but it's not the only truth that we are all interconnected. We are interconnected with the plants, the trees, the animals, the earth, all that stuff. And, you know, it's fascinating to me because if I'm depressed, I am so self-referential. I am so over-focused on me and my suffering and my pain that I can't get outside of my body. I can't get outside of my mind to even consider this stuff. And yet the funny thing is when you give someone that's depressed psilocybin, there's no possibility of a nocebo effect. You know, placebo is, I, I believe it will help me. Nocebo is, oh no, I'm like, this Advil is not going to help me. So it doesn't help me. There's no nocebo. It, that, that's not really an option. And so it does kind of, it presents you with evidence and experience that is directly contrary to your everyday perception and in a, in a very healthy and freeing way, I would argue. And I think that's an important distinction because so often people that I've spoken with that are afraid of psilocybin or afraid of psychedelics say, well, it was a drug, you know, like in the sixties, they were just saying how horrible it was for you. I mean, haven't you seen reefer madness and haven't you seen, you know, all the Timothy Leary stuff? And yet it, it was absolutely a drug that the military was using and experimenting with. And I find it just fascinating. And, and actually, I'm, I'm very excited about the new frontier that's opening up around this to truly help people that have been chronically depressed, that have been really anxious. And I do think that there's a very, um, I, I almost want to use the word practical use, if you will. But when you shared about you and your fiance, taking that together and having it be this important breakthrough for the two of you, 
I had uh, Jamie Wheel on the show who won the Pulitzer Prize for the book Stealing Fire. Oh, and, yeah. and in his work, too, he said, you know, there's there's four M's that are very important in our lives. And he said one would be the first M mountains or he said, you know, the ocean, it's it's nature, mm-hmm. meditation, marriage in whatever form that takes for you and mushrooms. And he said mushrooms in that you take them, not just how we used to think of them for a recreational use. And it's something that, you know, you just do hilly nilly, willy nilly. He said, use it for these important moments. Like he and his wife do it every year on their anniversary as a way of really coming back together and really having these, you know, super open-hearted conversations. Yeah. And um, that it can be during specific, you know, he says, you know, four or five times a year that that's really appropriate. Well, and I like, you know, Terry Reel's line. And to me, Terry Reel is one of the best couples counselors on the planet. And he says that, you know, most relationships don't end due to a huge transgression, like an affair. Most relationships end via death by a thousand paper cuts, where those paper cuts are the little hurts, annoyances, resentments that accumulate over time, right? And they're, those can be really, really little. But inevitably, they're going to accumulate in any human relationship, I would argue. And yeah, you know, you can address them at that time, which helps, but they still accumulate. And then our our perception, the lens through which we view our partner goes from all positive, which it is when we first start dating, to somewhat negative, to mostly negative, to even all negative. And I think one of the things that psilocybin and MDMA can do is reset that lens. And one of the uh, the metaphors that I like is, it's kind of like your mind is a snow globe where without any tinkering, there's paths that you walk in the snow. And those are like the ways that your brain hubs traditionally or habitually communicate with each other. And that's pretty limited. And then you throw something like psilocybin or MDMA into the mix, and it's kind of like shaking up the snow globe, and you have this fresh layer of snow through which you can write new experiences onto that brain. Again, it's that back the idea of reopening those windows of critical learning. And when you talk about being able to open these windows of critical learning that have been shut down, and, and it is so true, we're habitual thinkers, and we probably think 80% of the thoughts today that we thought yesterday. And so that change is so slowly. Yeah. Um, and it, we're creatures of habit. Slowly. Yes. And, and that's a good thing if you're putting pro-social supportive habits in place, like going to the gym, for example, or drinking water. But most habits, I would argue, are not on the positive side of the column. Yeah, absolutely. And so to be able to break out of that, and I like the analogy, shake up the snow globe mm-hmm. and, or it's, you know, it's like clearing off the lens. Yeah. You know, the doors of perception. Yes. Love Cleansing it. Cleansing the doors of perception. Exactly. Aldous Huxley. Yeah. 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 Well, and you know, I can't believe we're, we're getting close to almost the end of our time together. There's so many more questions I have for you. And I want to make sure before, before we quit, Tell me a little bit about The Guide to Self, your book, the answer to the age-old question, how can I be happy? Well, that was the book that I wrote some years ago, partly because I felt like I had uncovered the question to how to, the answer, I guess, to the question, how to lead a happier life. And and part of this is, you know, becoming aware. I I think self-awareness is the foundation, right? And, you know, Tasha Urich's research that shows that 95% of us will happily and readily admit that we are highly self-aware, but in truth, it's about 12 to 15% of us, which is a huge problem. And so just being aware that maybe I'm not as self-aware as I think I am. In other words, are you aware of your values? Are you aware of your thoughts? Are you aware of your emotions? Are you aware of what's going on internally in your body, i.e. proprioception? Um, I think it's a, it's a good start to start there. And then we've got to learn how to turn down the volume on the negative thoughts, negative feelings, not that you're going to eliminate them, but you want to learn how to hear them, minimize them and work with them, relate differently to them. Let's put it that way. And then skills to turn up the volume on the positive side of things so that we have, I mean, like for instance, if, if we only know, if we're only aware of, or can name three emotions, which is I think what Brene Brown's research shows, we can name three emotions in our body, which is 
sad, which is one of the emotions. How, how the hell do we even know it when we're in a positive emotion, a positive emotional state? And if we can't get greater emotional granularity, then I'm happy then aren't we missing out on one of the major sources of happiness, which is the panoply or cornucopia of positive emotions. And, you know, so to get better at spotting the positive emotions, to get more curious about what are the positive emotions, what are the conditions which I can put into play in my life on a daily basis? And how can I learn to savor those positive emotions without overthinking them? Because we know that positive emotions are fleeting, fragile, quiet. They whisper to us, unlike, you know, kind of the less comfortable emotions, which kind of scream at us, you know, damn well, when you're pissed off, that, that's missing out on a major foundational pillar of a happier life. And then I, you know, I think there's meaning, there's things like meaning and purpose, which are huge. Uh, you know, I, I'm kind of of the opinion that none of us should really retire. I, I think we, we need to feel meaningful and purposeful in some way, whether it's volunteering um, or consulting or offering our skills and services to others. I, I just, I tell all my, you know, middle-aged, older male clients, like, you will not just retire and play golf. That's out of the question. You can golf, but you're not golfing five, six days a week. Because you will be depressed. Right. Because you can't go from being an active contributing member of society where you have an identity and you feel some sense of value and purpose to golfing every day of the week. The golf yeah. will be fun for a couple of weeks, but then you're going to get somewhere between somewhat to terribly bummed out. And terribly bored. Yeah. Truly. Although you might get better at golf. <laughs> yeah. True that. So if you had to write another chapter to this book today, if you were extending it, what would you say? Um, you know, I, I think the way that my, my career has gone, I've gone from focusing on the individual to focusing on the dyad or the couple to focusing on larger and larger groups. I'm really curious about this in-group, out-group idea. And I think one of the things that psychedelics can do for us is show us that our in-group is actually humanity. It's not Republicans. It's not Democrats. It's not white people. It's not black people. It's not Jewish people. It's not Middle Eastern people. It's not short people, tall people. It's, it's none of that. The in-group is humanity. We're all in this together. And I think, you know, to look for ways in which we are similar and in which we have common ground is far more valuable, necessary, and needed than to, I think, what we've done in the past 20 or 30 years, which is to look for ways in which we are special, unique, and deserve praise. I think that has fueled a pretty significant uptick in narcissism you know, the whole self-esteem movement. I got a participation ribbon. Yay. Yeah. 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 Johnny, I, you're I, doing great, but I got an F. I, I literally worked for a school district when that came into fashion. Yeah. And I had such internal angst around that. And what we found is self-compassion is actually far more robust and powerful than self-esteem. That self-esteem ties how you feel generally about yourself to how you last achieved. I got an A on the test. I feel great about myself. I got an F on the test. I'm a worthless sack of shit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas self-compassion irons out those highs and lows emotionally and disconnects how you feel about yourself globally from how you achieve, which makes you more resilient. Well, and the piece that you said about that we're all in the in-group of humanity, I absolutely love that. That's the, one of the things I talk about a lot is that we're all essential threads right? In the fabric of humanity. And I have to tell you, John, you probably can't hear it from your end, but as you started talking about that, the university here, their band practices about three blocks away and they just started playing as <laughs> you were saying that. I was like, this is the best. Wow. Yeah. It was like That's some good synchronicity. Yeah, it was some awesome synchronicity. Like that is the message. That's it. Yeah. We're celebrating that. So John, how can people get a hold of you if they want to learn more about you and listen to your podcast, get your book? Yeah, thank you for asking. The, the podcast is, as you said, the Evolved Caveman podcast. It's on all the major platforms. A couple of sites that I have are guidetoself.com and theevolvedcaveman.com. Um, my fiance and I just 
are putting the finishing touches on a retreat that we're going to do in September of 2024 in Costa Rica. So we're pretty excited about that. Um, so that will be coming soon. And yeah, I think that's about it. Right on. Well, and what would your essential message be for listeners? What What do you want to leave with the listeners today? Um, that I, I think we had life better figured out when we were five years old. That I think, you know, we get to be teenagers and we get really enamored with adult risk-taking behaviors like drinking and sex and drugs and all that kind of stuff. And I think a lot of happiness has to do with really simple pleasures that we were well aware of and mastered at the age of four, five, and six. Things like walking in the grass with your shoes off or playing at the park or talking to a friend or riding a bike or hiking in nature or being in water. And, and so I, I think that's, that's a big part of it for me is, is reconnecting with wonder and awe where wonder is kind of curiosity about the smaller things like butterflies and caterpillars, let's say, and awe is being to some extent overwhelmed by the vastness and vastness and beauty and scope of things like the nighttime sky or half dome at Yosemite. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, John. My pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Loved having you on the show. Thank you for sharing your light, your spark, and your wisdom with us. Thank you, Stephanie. You have been listening to Igniting the Spark with Stephanie James. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast platforms. Make sure you subscribe and receive every episode. For more information about this show, my books, films, and events, go to stephaniejames.world and ignite your best life. If you're inspired by the teachings of Dr. Wayne Dyer, you will love the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast with Nadia Dela Cruz. You are a spiritual being having a human experience. My name is Nadia Dela Cruz, and I started the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast to explore spiritual topics like manifestation and meditation with guests who share their own stories of insight, awakening, and transformation. Listen now on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.